Our guest today is the wonderful, beautiful, enigmatic Gita Hindocha. I'm slightly biased in that she's my mother, so you're going to refer, hear me refer to her as mum. Hey mum, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. Are you comfortable? Are you all set? Yep. Yeah. Okay, well let's <laughs> get going. So, you know the format, you know what we're here to do. We're here to explore and unpack your past, your present and the life lessons that you've learned along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with your childhood. 1st of January 1960, you come mm-hmm. into the world. Yep. Talk to us about your family life and what it was like growing up. Okay, so I was the second child born to my mum and dad. First one was Bunsi, my brother. So I was born, like you said, on New Year's Day. And when my mum went into labour, uh, she had a tough time in hospital because there wasn't many staff, many midwives, so she was like struggling. Anyway, I was born eventually. <laughs> and um, I grew up in a very loving environment. I lived with my grandparents. Uh, my dad is the only child, so I didn't have any uncles and aunts, but he had lots of cousins and they were all like a one big family. And because we lived in Kampala, which is the main capital city in Uganda, all these other relatives lived scattered all over Uganda. So they would have to, if they had owned shops and things, they would have to come and trade through Kampala. So we had guests at our house every single day, and it was just a norm to be in the extended family. And my mum worked very hard, as did my dad, but my mum worked super hard. And my grandma had a, a bit of an OCD with cleanliness and all this. So my mum had to put up with a lot of lesser. And with five kids, because there were three more born after me, um, it was full on for her. But uh, we had a very loving childhood. I have many vivid memories of my dad. He's such a fun-loving dad. And he would, after picking up us up from school, he would take us to nice restaurants to eat. He took us to swimming lessons to friends' houses, and we had such an amazing time growing up. And my mum, bless her, she worked very hard, but she used to tell us all these stories while she was cleaning in the kitchen or, you know, clearing out wardrobes and things. We'd all sit around her and she'd be telling us stories. And, yeah, it was a very, very fun childhood. We played outdoors a lot, nothing like this now. We weren't scared. All the, We lived in a flat, so all the children from the building played together. We had this big forecourt. And as Indians, we have so many festivals and things. So we all celebrated it all together. And Navratri came. And ever since a very young age, I remember wanting to go to Garba, dress up. So my mom used to dress me up in the same sari every day. Not that I knew any different. I was only seven or eight. And I would go with neighbors, neighbors' children, and have such a fun time. And yeah, everything was great. I loved school. I loved eating. I was a big chubby child. <laughs> my, my my mom used to feed me pendas every day and I'd throw a tantrum if I didn't have a pendo for one day. Horrendous, I know now. But um, uh, we had a lovely childhood and my dad loved eating, so he just fed us like chocolates and sweets and everything. And up until the age of 11, when all the ED I mean thing happened, everything was fine. It was great. Yeah. So what, and I what remember, kind of games, you talked about so much there, what, what kind of games hmm. would you play 
with um, the children. So of God, he said it's nothing like today. What 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 kind of things no. would you do, and how is it different? We had all these games we used to play, like uh, in in Gujarati, you call it magar magar, but it's like crocodiles. So you'd have to have one person would be a crocodile. All the other kids would be like you'd have to get up higher than the crocodiles on a step or anywhere you could climb onto and hold onto, so they couldn't catch you. And we used to play dodgeball, have a circle and a ball, and then play dodgeball like that. And we used to play hopscotch, play with the skipping rope, all the kids together, uh, ride bikes outside. And Munsi and Amar and the boys of the building used to build bearing cars where they get scraps of wood and scraps uh, like little reels uh, from thread, empty, empty reels and make them into wheels and then knock nails into them and make like little bearing cars, they used to call it. And where we lived, there was like a, almost like a little hill, hill kind of road. So we'd all go, you know, going down in those bearing cars. And I was very much of a tomboy. I loved playing with boys all the time. I didn't play with dollies or anything. And I was just like a bit of a bully as well. <laughs> and me and Bunty used to play with all his friends. And we had these water tanks on top of the buildings on top of the, the actual buildings and then some of them would be open we play inside them in the water not tell the parents we, we used to get up to all sorts of mischief and some of the grandmas like my grandma used to dry grains on the on the um, terrace and uh, red chilies they used to dry and then get the poor black guys to pound them into chili powder um, so they'd be all drying up there and we'd mess it all up and walk through them and not tell them and we were very, very naughty children, unfortunately. <laughs> why, and, um, why do you yeah. think you were such a tomboy? I don't know. I guess playing with Bunsi all the time. And I just, I think I was very rebellious from a very young age, if I remember right. Um, my grandma always wanted me to dry the dishes as soon as the, the, the servant had washed them. And I refused to do it and hide behind my dad. And my dad always used to come to my defense and say, well, just leave her be, it's fine. Just, just, just play. She'll come in a bit and all this. And my grandma, I remember, used to say to my dad, you spoil her too much. And when she grows up and she gets married, she'll be back the next day. And she used to make all these cursing remarks. But she loved me, really. But it was just, just the way, like very old school grandparents, the way they brought us up. And, and I just, I was really rebellious from like, I just used to defy authority all the time. I just, I don't know why, but that, that's, and because I was chubby, I used to get teased a lot in the classroom. The boys used to call me fatty and all sorts, and I, I used to beat them up if they did that. So I used to just love it. <laughs> who, who do you think was the biggest influence on you at that time? Uh, my dad, I think, because he was very calm. Uh, my mom, poor thing, because she was overworked, she used to get angry quite a bit. And if we were, re if I was really naughty, I'd get walloping as well, with a vein or a rolling pin or a slap across the face if I didn't behave myself. Uh, but my dad was just so composed all the time, and I just, I think, um, he had very good friends who we were influenced by. They're the ones who pushed my dad into sending us for swimming lessons and for this thing and that thing and be a more, bit more adventurous and stuff. So I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for them too. But I think, yeah, my dad, I think, influenced me more. Awesome. So we, yeah. sounds like a very happy 
um, childhood, which is probably very different to how most people picture Kampala either today or what it must have been yeah. like in that moment in time. Yeah, and very different yeah. from your time and your children's time. Yeah. And you get to the age of 11 and you talked about, or you've mentioned Idi Amin. Um, mm. Talk to us about that. What was that experience like? How do you remember it from your vantage point? So um, I, initially I didn't understand it much, but I could feel the tension in the house when it was announced that he wanted all Asians, Idi Amin wanted Asians to leave the country. He gave us three months. But then at, at the same, very same time, there was a civil war going on between the two tribes in Uganda. And, be, and because of that, there was a curfew, in, especially in Kampala, because Idi Amin actually lived in Kampala. And so from seven o'clock in the evening, nobody should step outside their house, their curtains should be drawn. It was like a dead, dead city, dead town. And for us children, it was very odd to be cooped up in the house, not being let out to play, not drawing the curtains. And I remember a couple of times, we'd sneak in through the curtains as my parents would. And unfortunately, I have this vivid memory of a lorry load of black bodies taken on the road with blood dripping from it. And then my dad kind of was talking to somebody, having a conversation on the phone in Kabale, which is hundreds of miles away from Kampala, that, you know, this is very, this is really getting serious now, the civil war, we have to be very careful and all this. And in the midst of all that, in the news, they would say, oh, by the way, when I grew up, we didn't have a TV. Nobody did in those days. And finally, when I was about eight, one person in the building had a TV, a black and white one. And we used to beg them for us to see the TV. So we'd stand in their doorway when they had their TV on and we'd watch it for like an hour or so. And we'd be so excited. Bill and Ben and the Flowerpot Men. And I still remember the programs. It was just insane. I loved it. Anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, so Idi Amin, he... And then it came to a point where we heard of cases where they were, the military would come into anybody's house, take the man of the house away, and they were never seen again. And then in the news, it would be reported that they were taken a few miles out of Kampala, lined up, and killed. Literally shot, like you see in movies these days. It was, it was like that, apparently. So one of my uncles, my fuas, got taken like that. And he was, he's, to this day, he's never been seen. And apparently, he was killed like that. And lo and behold, um, because my dad did money lending business from home, him and my granddad, we had an office and then bedrooms, two bedrooms. One, which five of us siblings with my grandparents, we shared a bedroom. Yeah. And the other bedroom, no, sorry, mom and dad and Al Kamasi had the second bedroom. But us four and Ba and Bapuji and were in the same one bedroom. Anyway, we had bunk beds and there weren't too many luxuries in those days, but we were happy, very happy. So anyway, um, so because they had a money lending business, um, the, I don't know, for some reason the word got out and they must have thought that we must have money in the house. We had big, big safes in our office. So we had, at one point, they were banging on the door. So mom opened the door and these three military men with huge machine guns came into the house. And in Swahili, he said to mom, line, line up against the wall here in the corridor. So mom, my grandma, uh, us kids, five kids, all lined up against the wall. And he was waving his gun, one of them. The other one is rummaging through the 70s 
safe. They said, give me the keys. My mom gave him the keys, the, the cupboard. They turned the temple, the little shrine that we had upside down, thinking that we might have money behind there. They took whatever they could. And they said, well, so where's your man? Where's your man? And my mom said, he's not here right now. So dad was, luckily, my dad was out at the time. And so they went away. And that happened twice. And had my dad been there, he would have been taken. For sure. How old were you at dad, this moment? 11. 11. 11. So I vividly remember that scene. I can visualize it now, the, the terror in my mom's eyes and all of us, actually, to be fair. Um, and um, then my dad took a decision. And because in Congo, a, few, a couple of years before, something had happened, a coup had happened in Congo, and they were raping girls and pillaging and all this. So my dad was really scared. So he said, he decided that by the time they wind up and get us out of there and whatever, we had a property in, in India because a few years before then, my grandparents had gone to India, bought a property in Rajkot. And my, my dad thought it would be wise to send us girls, me, Bhavna, and Amar, and uh, my grandparents to India. So, and then he, and then we, and he would follow on later. And he would keep Mansi and Alka with them. With Mansi being the eldest boy and then Alka, obviously the youngest girl, she wouldn't, she was only four at the time. So she wouldn't have um, been able to be with us. She needed, um, obviously, my mum. So uh, then the decision was taken. So he actually bought us tickets and he said, well, I'm going to send you to India. And he left me in charge of the passports because my granddad didn't speak much English at all. So um, he, he said, okay, Okay, you guys, are, you five are going to India, to Mumbai. I've got a cousin there. He'll pick you up at the airport. And he decided to do that. And they were going to stay behind until a later date. So that's what happened. We got Have sent to... Have you ever travelled internationally like that before? Had you been to India Never. before? Did you know? Never. What was going through your mind at that time of seeing that, seeing the truck and then putting it together and now being separated from... I think it was terrifying, to be honest with you. I was absolutely dreading the journey. I dreaded the flight. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Um, because all the Asians were leaving, the airports there obviously were used to it. And we got shoved onto the plane. When we got down at Mumbai, these guys gave us the hardest time because they knew that we were vulnerable. They're like two little kids and grandparents who don't know anything. So he was like bombarding me with questions that, you know, are you a refugee? Are you here for good? Can I take your passport? And I said, yes. So he took our passports. I surrendered my passports. I didn't know any better. And then he said, then I can let you go. And then I left with my parents. And luckily my cousins were there to pick us up and take them to his house. And that's what happened. And then at a later date, I found out that um, dad then with his friend's influence decided, his friend said, look, you've got British passports. What are you going to do in India? You won't be able to work there. How are you going to educate your children? Why don't you go to Britain first, see what it's like, and then for your kids' education, it'd be much better. So then it, the penny dropped, and then Dad thought, oh, yeah, okay, I may as well do that. So then he notified us somehow through Telegram or some international phone call to Mumbai saying that him, Mum, Bansi, and Alka are going to come to England as refugees and test the waters and then see how things pan out. And in the meantime, the, the uncle and auntie that I lived with in Mumbai, they treated us really well. They had young kids our age 
Um, so we stayed there a few days, I, I believe. And then my granddad and my grandparents were getting really impatient. They wanted to get back to Rajkot, not stay in Mumbai. And then my uncle and aunt convinced her that why don't you leave Gita here with us? She can go to school here until Bikubai comes back. And I was quite keen to stay. So they left me and they went to Rajkot. And I, to be honest, I was very naive. I didn't really understand the implications of it or anything. And to be, to be fair, I had very long hair. I couldn't even do my own hair at that age because my mom used to plait them every day. So I had no idea how to do my own hair. It was just such a big mess. I didn't know what to do with it. So my auntie suggested cutting it. So I cut it really short so that I could just bundle it up somehow. And But then things turned a bit weird after that. But that's another story entirely. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. So how long were you... How long were you there? How long were you in Mumbai? Six months. Six months. Six months. I stayed six months. And I was put into this school where the other kids used to go. And one of my dad's cousins used to be at uh, university there in Mumbai, in another town. And he, every weekend, he used to come to the same uncle's house um, to get, you know, just to have some relaxing time. And I, for some reason, he got jealous that I was there. So he wrote to my mom and he said, why did you leave Gita here? You know what they're like, this, that, the other. Because my auntie was pretty strict, but she was nice to me. So then my mom wrote back saying, yeah, I know what they're like, but we'll talk to her when we come there. That's what, that was her reply. And for some reason, the uncle that I lived with, he got a hold of that letter in his house. Because my other, obviously, my other uncle, younger one, took it there and left it there. So when she got wind of it, she was very upset, my auntie, obviously, clearly. So she took it out on me. She used to, like, hit me on the head several times in the day, not give me enough food. At five o'clock in the morning, when the bell rang, I had to get up and get the milk in from the milkman because they used to bring it in those metal containers. So you used to have to take your own pan outside. He'd measure it up, the milk, put it in the thing. And then you had to, I had to go and put it out of the stove and boil it and stand there until it got boiled. Anyway, so then she obviously took it out on me. And then school, at school, I think my headmaster was a pervert because I was fair and chubby. And in the morning, we used to have to sit cross-legged for assembly. And he'd come and sit next to me and put his hand on my thigh and slap it and go, yes, I like this girl. I like this girl. I, I remember him doing that. And I remember thinking, what the, why is he touching me, like, on my leg, like that? Do you know what I mean? It's so weird. And so I told my uncle, and I said, I, I don't know whether I said to him that I, I don't know what happened, nothing came of it, but I still remember this, this, this eerie sensation that I had at school, and I didn't like it one iota. And um, I didn't get enough food to eat. We still have to leave at 7 in the morning for school. The bus came to pick us up. And... We'd drive through and along the little like uh, pond-like things in Mumbai, there's lots of like red water reservoirs. There'll be lines and lines of people defecating. And you'd see that in first thing in the morning at seven o'clock. It was disgusting. And it stank. Anyway, the school day was from seven to one. So one o'clock, the bus would pick us up, bring us back. We'd have lunch back at the house. And then it was just literally playtime. And I used to have to look after the youngest one play with him and look after him and it was, was, a, it, it was an awful time was it much of a culture shock going from Kampala to Mumbai other than obviously not having your family but just the general lifestyle and pace of life well absolutely absolutely horrendous 
Absolutely. But the one thing, when I was in Kampala, we used to be scared of black people, some of the black people. And at one point, Bhavna nearly got kidnapped by a black vagrant. And luckily, my granddad met him across the road and thought, why is, this, why is Bhavna being carried by this, this funny person? And he confronted him and he let her go. So I was always scared of black people. And when I saw the dead boy, I was, in a way, I was really glad to leave Kampala at that time. I remember that feeling of relief that we're not going to have to face these people anymore. But then when we went to India and the hustle bustle of Mumbai and, you know, there's still like so many poor people and shanty towns and, and you still get scared of like, like unknown people and, you know, like strange people and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was, it was uh, a big culture shock and, and uncertainty, I think. And a couple of times I, I remember in the middle of the night thinking, should I run away? Should I just open the door and run away from here? Because at one time I got head lice and I was so scared to tell my aunt and I should be forever scratching and I didn't know what else to do. And I could see them crawling on my pillow at night. And I'm like, what do I do with this? And anyway, she found out, obviously. So I, used to, I got a rollicking then. She literally went berserk. Anyway, she, she kind of sat me down, put this thing in, and then she combed me with a lice comb. And she said, your mom's never going to be grateful that I did this for you. And she'd be taunting me all the time. And, and then at one point... From Rajkot, my grand, my mum's parents came to visit. And I literally said, held, held on to my nanny and I said, please, can you take me back to Rajkot? Please, can you take me back? I had tears in my eyes and in Gujarati, obviously. And she's like, no, I can't without your parents' permission. I'm not going to ask your auntie that I can take you back. I can't take you back like that. So they left. And that night I thought I'd run away, but I didn't. Thank God. I don't know where would I have gone in Mumbai. <laughs> What, um, but, did you understand why your aunt had turned on you at that point? So did you want, did you knew about the letters? You, did you know that? Uh, at the time, I didn't understand much. I could hear him, um, both of them, my auntie and uncle, arguing in the middle of the night. And I could hear voices and things. And when they found out that my mom and dad were actually coming back to India, uh, that's, she, that's when she said, oh, I'm going to see your mom. I'm going to sort her out and all this. And then I said to my uncle, please, can I come to the airport to, to, you know, pick them up from the airport? And he's like, no, you can't come. because It's too early in the morning. And the day before, I fell off a chair and I punctured my head really badly and it bled a lot. So then my auntie, the day before my mom and dad actually arrived in Mumbai, we lived in a building, like I said, and there was a doctor's surgery at the base and it was like six in the evening or something. So she literally grabbed some tea leaves, shoved them in the head. And then we went downstairs and then she told the doctor. And luckily the doctor was just about to leave, a lady doctor. And they stopped her in time. And she said, oh, this is a very deep wound. I'm going to have to stitch it. And then she got a couple of men around the building to hold me down while she took four stitches in my head, shaved my head, part of my head, took four stitches put a bandage on me and I looked like a right vagabond then because I was, I'd lost so much weight. I'd, my hair was like, I was half bald here and I just cried and I, I told my uncle, I'll be up early. I want to come. And then he was nicer than her. So I, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning. I said, I want to come with you. And he took me with him to um, fetch mom and dad from the airport. And when my mom saw me, she just literally just burst into tears. She just could not believe that it was me. 
this fat chubby thing turned into this skinny mutt. Anyway, we got back. I remember distinctly, it was very early in the morning. And then um, I was told to go into my room and go to sleep. But then she just laid me into mum and dad to the point where my mum was just literally crying her eyes out, begging for forgiveness and all this. Said, yes, she was wrong. She never sort of said that. And then that's when, you know, just now in Loughborough, her dad, my dad's mama, he lived in another town in Mumbai. He came to pick us up and we went to live with them. We left these guys. So, um, yeah, we went to, we, we stayed with him for a couple of nights and then we went to Rajkot uh, to see my grandparents after all this time, after I left Kampala, I hadn't seen them or Pauna or Amor or anybody. They started going to school there. So, um, how long, how long had it been since you'd all been together? Together, six months, six, seven, seven, eight months, I think. Oh, all of us together. Yeah, eight months. Eight months. Eight, nine months. Yeah. So then you're based in Rajkot? Huh? You're based in Rajkot at this time? Yeah. So when we go to Rajkot, we lived with my nanny and nana. No, sorry, we went there first. And they said that my granddad, because of the shock of leaving behind his only son and family in uncertain terms and having lost so much that he'd worked for because he had to leave everything behind in Uganda. I think it was like 15 million shillings or something like that, which in those days was a lot of money. Anyway, um, he got very depressed. So he would, he got into this habit of leaving the house in the middle of the night, walking out into the streets, not knowing where he's going. So he was, he was very down, my granddad. And, uh, but after my dad got back and we started living in our house in Rajkot, my dad decided that no, India wasn't the place for us. He decided that no, we had to come back to UK for the kids' education, for everybody's well-being. And so, and, and he told me that you should never have surrendered your passport, but he knew I was very young and I didn't know what I was doing. So then what happened was we all went back to Mumbai and then we had to go to the British Embassy day, day in, day out. Nana had to go and beg them and pleaded with them. And, and finally we got passports. And then in April 73, we decided to leave and come back to England. Wow, so you're and 13 we at that time. What did you know about England before you came? Everything which, uh, you know, that Dick Whittington story, like Streets of Gold and, you know, all these lovely stories that you read about and you have this vision of in, in London being superb and beautiful and, you know, like everything is just so nice and organized. And But I, I must say, we went straight to Leicester and it was very different because it was all like factories, terraced housing. My uncles and aunt lived in terraced housing. It was super cold. We weren't used to the cold at all. First time ever we'd been exposed to this cold temperature. And it was, it was tough times. It was nothing like what we'd imagined it to be. And then... My dad's friend who lived in Loughborough said, why don't you come here? The schools are nicer here. You can stay with me. So we lived with them for five months, seven of us and four of them, 11 of us in a two bedroom terraced house where the bathroom is outside the bottom of the garden. It seems kind of ridiculous when you think about it now, when we sort of have houses and places that seem small for, mm. you know, a family of four when it's a four bedroom. Um, yeah. How do you think about that sort of 
act of generosity of living with different members of your family and obviously you had mixed experience with your aunts your aunt in Mumbai versus mm. your family in Rajkot even though it was short-lived and then Leicester and Loughborough how do you yeah. how do you think about what that must have been like for it must have been tough for them but I think because it's like culturally and traditionally expected of you to look after your relatives you know and friends I mean our friends didn't have to offer us a house to, to live with them but we got along so well and but I wish despite them treating us really nicely we were together for a long I think towards the end it got to all of us I think we needed our space and they needed their space it came to a point where you think no this is enough now already and um, you know the biggest mistake my dad made was that he had a little bit of money here uh, I think 4,000 pounds I'm talking like 50 years ago nearly now and um, one of my the, the, the friends that we lived with, his aunt, she lived in Loughborough and she was a very smart cookie. She owned properties that she rented out. So she wanted to buy another property. So she said to my dad, give me your money. I'll buy this property and then you, I'll give you reduced rent in that house. But my dad didn't think that I could put that money down and buy that house. You see? So she conned him more or less. Yeah. And, but anyway, we lived in a very, like, very basic house in the entire house. Our toilet was at the bottom of the garden with half a door broken. The bathtub was in the kitchen. There was a gas cooker, a sink, a little cupboard, and a bathtub at the end. And freezing cold. We had a three-bar heater in the little lounge thing that we had. No heaters in the bedrooms, two bedrooms. And when it was wintertime, the ice used to form on the inside of the window. It was that cold. And we didn't even have a bath every day because it just wasn't the done thing. Because you can't waste hot water, energy. We used to have these meters, you used to put 50p in every time you ran out and that's where you got your electricity from. So, and then luckily dad managed to find a job as a bookkeeper in a factory. And my mum got a job in the Pfizer's pharmaceutical company as a packer. She used to pack vitamins in boxes. And yeah, so they both started working and we used to have to be very thrifty with what we had. We couldn't afford, but I can never remember any of us asking for anything because we understood that we can't, we can't afford it. Simple. And then my dad decided to get my mom, my grandparents over because they were on their own in India. So then he called them over and then we moved into a council house um, where they suffered a lot of racism, a lot. Uh, you know, they used to call us Pakis go home, you know, rogs, nigs, nogs, even at school. Uh, some, some girls used to have it in for us. We used to get tripped up. Um, yeah, all sorts of, but it was just, we just had to deal with it the best way we could. Did you, you understand, know, did you understand racism? Did you, how did you mm, It was very tricky. I think the, the way we were brought up, the whites were always superior, even in Kampala. When we went to a five-star hotel, the whites owned it. And they were like dressed beautifully and they were like full of etiquette. And we were like all these like rough kids kind of into, you know, into their space, if you know what I mean. And obviously we all, I think it was built in in us that like the whites were the superior, then came us and then the blacks, that kind of thing. The blacks were like your servants and your 
So that's the way it was inbred in us, I think, from a very young age. So we always looked up at white people as superior to us when we were young. Mm. So you never argued about that. You never, like, you know, even in history lessons, like Livingston and this and that, and they used to come to Africa and all these wild people, they kind of tamed them and got them to going to church and all this kind of thing. So it was, it was very strange, I think. And um, I remember that um, I used to, I mean, my, I had some white friends in my class, uh, in my secondary school, and they were really good friends of mine. But some Indian kids used to just stick around with Indian kids, if you see what I mean. Like Bansi Mama, I never had white friends. He just had his Indian guy friends. But um, I found that strange. I, I would get along with anyone and everyone. Why, why do you think you found it strange where... I don't know. I, I just felt that... I, I guess it was my sense of belonging. I had to belong. I couldn't... <coughs> I just couldn't be different. I just felt that, no, I had to be part of that. I used to um, hang around with these girls in secondary school, and every Tuesday, the new Top of the Pop songs would come on radio at lunchtime, and we'd sneak behind the bike sheds and listen to the top, you know, the top ten and see which number one it was. And it was just fun, just like going against authority and doing something very different to the norm that you were expected to at home. You see what I mean? Yeah. You're yeah. talking about going behind yeah. the bike shed is slightly uncomfortable, so we'll move merrily on. <laughs> um, how, I guess, the question just of everything is, how do you think about dealing with change or about integration into a different society. So, you know, at this point, you're what, 15, 16, you've grown mm. up in four different, but four or five very different cities, very different experiences, yeah. very different surroundings, um, different role models. How do you think that shaped the way that you think about dealing with change and integrating into a society? Um, I think a lot of it, uh, because I grew up in that very strict, not strict, but like very old school environment, because in Loughborough where I lived, my mama lived close to us, and my nanny and nana came over from Rajkot, and we used to meet up with all our relatives in Leicester, and it, it kind of seemed that you were, all the girls and the boys were kind of uh, guided in a certain way. Uh, it was still very much like, oh, the girls help out in the kitchen, the boys just sit, and then they have to be served, all the men folk eat first. All that happened in every household, including mine. And I, I, used, to, I used to find that really hard to, although I couldn't do anything about it because I was young, I used to say to my mom, why? You know, why are the guys just sitting there, and why are they doing this? And, but it, it never could. It was just expected. My, my mom didn't even speak to my granddad face to face. She had to keep her distance as a as a daughter in law of the house. They never had face to face conversation till the day he died. He had the utmost respect for my mom because obviously she served the whole world, all of them. And my dad had very peculiar eating habits and timings and she would make sure that everything was sorted and he would only rely on her, not even my ba, that my mom will see it that he's properly catered for and properly um, yeah, if, if my mom had gone away for some reason, he would be like very upset or Nirmaranati or you know, like he'd be very despondent. And uh, uh, yeah, so um, I think 
come. And then when it came to choosing my GCSEs in my school, I just wish that my parents had taken more interest, but then on hindsight, they never had the time because there was five of us and they were so busy with their work life, with the house life, with the social, every one, every weekend, something or the other, some katha or some satsang or some wedding was going on and they were super busy and my dad was a part of the, the committee in the temple. So everything was really like, they didn't really have time for us, I don't think. So when it came to choosing my secondary school, I just went along with what my friends went along with. I had, didn't, didn't really understand it all. And my, like I said, my two best white friends wanted to become nurses. And I thought, that's, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. But had my parents taken any interest and said, no, you look, do this or do that. And I, from, a very young, from a very young, I remember saying, I'm never going to work in an office. I don't want to be a typist and I don't want to work in an office. And Alka and Bauna went down that route. They did the secretarial, this, that, the other, Pittman's college thing, whatever they did. And uh, yeah, so I, and then luckily for me, Ramnik Mama and Santi Mama were both nurses because that was the only vocation they could get employment when they came. They were both illegal initially. So they got, um, but then they excelled. I mean, Santi Mama was cardiothoracic superintendent. And even Ramnik Mama, they both did superbly well. And so I followed their footsteps and I wanted to do nothing and I wanted to go away from home. I was determined I wasn't going to stay close to I wanted to go away. So then when my relatives found out, they were like onto me like a ton of bricks. Oh, nursing is not a job. It's a very dirty job. You know, Biku, you should tell your daughter not to do this huge mistake. This, that, the other. And my dad said, my dad was very good. He said, well, if she, that's what she wants to do, she wants to do it. And they're like, oh, she's never going to survive on her own in the this, that, the other. When somebody dares me, I'm bloody minded. I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to stick it through and I'm going to show them. So I went to, I applied in Nottingham, Peterborough. Actually, initially I wanted to do physiotherapy as well. But then you needed GCSE physics at grade A and I didn't have that. So I opted for nursing instead. But I had a wonderful time in Peterborough nursing, staying there. Why... Why did you feel compelled to leave home? Why? why... I don't know. Because I, I, I wanted to defy authority. I wanted to come out of the structure that I was expected to be in. I just did not want it. I just could not deal with it. And when I saw my other friends going on holiday, and I thought, why can't we go on holiday? So when I was 16, when I was 15 and a half, I managed to get a job at Tesco, local Tesco. Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday. Thursday, two hours, five to seven. Friday, five to eight. And Saturday all day. And I used to get eight pounds for that. I still remember. And I used to save a bit. And then I bought my uh, first cities we bought. I bought from Freeman's catalog. And I used to pay like three fifty nine a week or something uh, for my wage. And I used to buy plant pots. I used to buy shirt for my dad or something for my mom or something from the market. We didn't, couldn't afford much, but whatever I could. And I, and I saved enough. And I wanted to go to Holland where my uncle lived. I wanted to go on a ferry to, on holiday. So I said to Amr, who was only like 14 at the time, I said, why don't we go on holiday together? I've saved up enough. So me and him, when I was 16, we both, in 1976, I remember, I managed to get tickets. And then we traveled on a train from Loughborough to St. Albans 
and then from there somewhere else, and then got a ferry, and then we went to Amsterdam. And then my uncle picked us up, and we had a wonderful time there. So that was my mm. first ever holiday. And did I was so back? proud of myself. Did you come back with your passport <laughs> this time? Yes. <laughs> and the first time I saw people taking drugs in Dam Square, openly, and I was shocked. What did you... But, yeah. Did you... Were you ever tempted to <laughs> experiment with drugs or anything while you were in Amsterdam? Uh, no, not in Amsterdam. But back in Loughborough, my dad used to smoke back then, and so did Santi Mama and Vinish Mama. And I always used to wonder what it would be like to smoke a cigarette. I was, I was fascinated. So I did try it. And I hated it from day one. I choked myself. And I thought, I'm, I, I just wondered why people would ever, ever do that. Never touched it again. <laughs> So, um, how did it feel when Nana, your dad, um, stood up for your choice to go into nursing? What, mm-hmm. Do you know what he honestly thought about it? And, or, or was he just defending your decision? I think, I don't think he thought it through. He was just thinking if that's what she really wants to do. And the funny thing is, Vishal, you know, the, one of his best friends from Kampala, who I said influenced Nana a lot about us taking swimming lessons, us being exposed to eating in posh restaurants, things like that. Um, I remember Raja, his name was Raja, and he, he taught us how to eat with a fork and knife and things like that, you know, like. Um, so anyway, he he had a son, and I, I didn't know this at the time, but he had his, in his idea that he wanted his son to marry me eventually when I was old enough. And he came to Nana and he said to him, oh, um, nursing is not good. You know, you must convince Gita. She has to do some other vocation, this, that, the other. And my dad was like, and he even talked to me. And he said, Beta, this is not, I said, but this is what I really want to do. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to go to secretarial college or whatever else. And he didn't like it at the time. And then I think when Nana left me, I was just so happy, so happy. And then the mom and dad came to settle me in my nursing home in Peterborough. I was the only Indian in the entire place. Only Indian person. Did you feel different? Did you feel the race difference? Um, I, I, boy, obviously I felt different because in my room I would have Bhagwana Fota, you know, like Matajina Fota and this, that. And they would come into my room for a coffee and they're like, oh, what's that? What's this? You know, like, but I've made some amazing friends. And there was a group of us who used to hang around together. In the nursing home, you have to understand that, I mean, obviously nurses had a very bad reputation of clubbing it and going out with doctors. And there was all that going on, but there was a group of them. We used to just love going to movies or going to a restaurant to eat or, you know, and we just, just hang out together. And, and they were all like girls from very decent backgrounds as well, from, from all over, from rugby, from... Uh, where was that other place? Anyway, all around Cambridge and all that side, because obviously it's sort of down that way. And I made some amazing friends. Yeah, so it, it was fine. I knew I was different, obviously, but it was I could I could live with that. And in in Peterborough, I had uh, one of my dad's cousins there living there. He, a girl, uh, my Faiba, Sobifei's older sister. Their family was there. So if I wanted a nice break, they would come and pick me up. The boys were really good. And I could go and have a nice Indian meal with them. And uh, there were five sons, so I had to make all these rotlis. That's how I get got so much experience making like tons of rotlis. 
but it was fun. They really looked after me, and I, I can't, I can't. Um, your, yeah, my uncle was three. Was your experience of nursing college what you expected? Like, did it live up to your expectations of having some freedom and having an experience of what it was like to to be kind of British uh, at the time? Um, so the actual nursing experience, I loved. I loved what I did. And when we did nursing at the time, it wasn't too much theory. It was more practical on the wards. So um, my first death, I recall, like somebody, I was giving somebody a bed bath and she died. She literally turned and then that was it. So that was, that was a big shock to my system. I must admit, I didn't sleep that night. Obviously, I was 18 at the time. So you can imagine, I was very shocked. And one, one a Parkinson's patient slapped me across the face. Um, and then there was another old lady who I tried to turn and give her pressure care. And she put her poo in my hands and said, here you go. So there were funny experiences I had. Um, and then when I had to do my practical assessments over the years. So one of them, one of them is like a surgical, like um, aseptic technique. So you have to make sure that you dress a wound like clean cleanly and you have to show them and you, there, there was four practicals of medicine you have to i had to give medicines to the whole ward make sure i gave the right medicine right dose and then they, you get questioned about medicines and i had to answer all these questions and then the final one was taking charge of a ward in the night night duty and then the patient died in the night so i had to handle the last rites with another junior nurse so i used to lay i had to lay that patient down wash him down and you have to plug, on, plug in all the holes of the body because they leak otherwise. And right then, hospital number on the base of their foot. This is all happening in the middle of the night, in the quiet of the night, right? Mm-hmm. And then call the mortuary guys and take, take their body away and all that. So I think it toughened me a lot, I think, the whole experience. Living by myself, learning to fend for myself, budgeting myself. And then I used to have to travel from Peterborough to Loughborough, change two trains and a bus home. Nobody ever came to pick me or drop me off. But I think it was all like a big learning curve for me. And I was never scared of anything. I could just like think, yeah, I've got to handle this. And remember, we don't have, we didn't have phones and all that luxury at all. Um, so it, it was, we just had to learn the hard way, I guess. And uh, yeah, but it didn't last very long. I was two years into my training and then I got engaged to dad. So. So uh, <laughs> tell us how you met, how you were introduced, and the story of the So romance. basically, I, I was in Peterborough, and I used to, like I said, I used to go to my uncle's house. So I had, a, I had um, two houses I could go to. So one of my dad's cousins, I, his wife, I really got along with. So I used to go there quite a lot. And then they said, oh, they met this new neighbors, this, this new Indian family had moved in near them. And they'd come from London. And I said, oh, and then we, they introduced them. And they were Ashokada, Popat, Sajubai's older brother and his wife. And then she gave birth to Amish. And then he was, he was one year old and they wanted to throw a party. So I knew, I knew them. And then they wanted to make samosas. And I said, oh, I can make samosas. So I said, yeah, can you come and help? So I went with my auntie to their house and we made the samosas and everything. And then they said, on the day of the birthday, you must come and play games with all the children that are there. And I said, yeah, I used to love children even then. So on the day, I went along to their house and Raju Bhai and Lata Ben were there. That's where I met them the first time. 
And Patubhav introduced me saying, oh, this is Ashok's younger brother and his wife. And I met Lata Ben. And then me and Rajubai were in charge of entertaining the children. So we were playing musical chairs with the children and pass the parcel. And we had so much fun. Anyway, came away from the party to my uncle's house, stayed the night. The next thing I knew, Latafa is talking to dad saying, oh, I met this girl in Peterborough and I really liked her and I think you should meet her. And so dad said, oh, and then he asked details about me and he's like, oh, but I don't like nurses. Oh, that nursing is a dirty job. No, I don't think I want to. So then I think she kind of mentioned it to Bai and Bapuji and dad was 26 at the time. And they're like, you know, at least there's no harm in seeing her, this, that, the other. And then they convinced dad and then they approached Patubhavi and Ashokbhai and said, look, is there any chance? Then, so then they talked to my uncle and aunt and then the next time I went, they said, oh, um, there's this boy in London and I just laughed in their face. I said, what? So said, yeah. <clears throat> and I said, but I'm only 20. You do realize I'm still nursing and this, that, the other. And, and then he had another friend and I said, why did you ask his daughter? She's like 24. Then she could get married to him. And then uh, Patubhabi said, but, you know, the family is really good, Gita. If I was you, you know, I would really seriously consider meeting him. There's no harm in meeting him. And if you don't like it. And, they, and, and then they kind of convinced me. And at the time I thought, you know what, moving to London might be a good idea. I don't want to go to Leicester. So then obviously it was very, I talked to my mom and dad and they talked to my mom and dad actually. And then my mom called me and then she said, Joa Masuja, you know, just meet them. There's no harm done. <clears throat> so they arranged it. So Mansi and Bhavna drove down from Loughborough. These guys drove round from London and we met at Patubhabi's house. And Patubhabi said, oh, but you must wear a sari. And I'm like, I don't want to wear a sari. She said, yeah, yeah. It creates a good impression and all that and the other. And I said, but please don't make me take tea inside and all this. No, no, I won't. And sure enough, she said, oh, come and take the tea inside. So I had to bring this tray of tea and Bhav just kept staring at me and I was Scared as hell. I didn't even. I couldn't even look at that, and I thought, "Oh, I'm, I'm not looking. I'm not looking." <laughs> and then we sat there and we did idle chit chat. And then um, Dad was like, "Do uh, Ashoka though? I would like to stay, go outside and just chat to her for a bit. If that's okay." And then Pantuhabi uh, asked me, and I said, "Well, I don't know." And I called Bunsi over. I said, "What do I do?" And he said, "Hey, go on, go outside." So we went out, but I didn't realize that Dad would be driving. He said, "Oh, let's go in the car." So we went in the car and we drove around and he was asking me, what do you like sports? Do you like going out? Do you like, what do you like doing? What's your hobbies? This, that, the other. And he said he was in the YLA and he loved all these sports. And I said, oh, it sounds good. And then he's like, so how do we get back home? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't live in Peterborough. I said, I only go from the station to the nursing home and back. I don't know any of the roads. So no A to Z or anything. We were like looking around. trying to. I couldn't even remember the address. But finally, we managed to come back after a couple of hours and these guys were wondering what the hell is going on anyway so then they left and uh, the next day Patubhabi called me and said yeah they really liked you do you want to meet again he wants to see you in a dress dad Mr. Funny Pants so, so I'm like oh okay so and I'm he like, wanted, oh my god he, I can't he specifically this. requested that you wear a dress yeah like English clothes not a sari <laughs> so I'm like okay <laughs> So um, <clears throat> uh, so we arranged it, and a couple of weeks later, he came back by himself from London. I met him again, and then, uh, yeah, we went out for, for like a meal. I think we went to Pizza Hut or somewhere. I don't know. I can't remember now. 
And that was it. And he went back. He came with uh, Sonali. She was only four. He came with Sonali. And uh, so then he went back and he said, yeah, it's all good. And then Kundanfeng was here with Raki and Rehan. Their family was here. And they were traveling to Bolton and all that. So then <clears throat> I think Bapuji suggested to dad that why don't we all meet up at your house? They wanted to see where I lived and what my parents were like because they had never met them. So then they came over and they met and then Kundan Fei liked me and all that, blah, blah, blah. And then Bapuji said, okay, let's drive down. So Bharatada, Pinky, Auntie, Bakul, Viren, Bai and Bapuji, six of them, in you know, one car, drove down to Loughborough. I was there. So they came in and they met my grandparents. They met everybody and they ate dinner. And then they were laughing on the way that if, if Gita's liked you, there would be samosas and jambu on the menu. And sure enough, it was jambu and samosas. And so, they, yeah, they got along and then dad again said, let's just pop out for a while. And then we went outside, walked about for a bit, came back and these guys had more or less decided that, yes, this was a given. So, so the first time we met, we so were engaged. Just um, pause for a second. <laughs> what, what were your first impressions of Babaji and the whole clan turning up? So, um, Pinky Auntie was very modern. She had a lovely like trousers and a top and her hair was, and she was beautiful when she was young, super slim, very elegant. And Ma seemed very modern compared to other, um, you know, other people, other Indian women that I see. Uh, she was very with it. And I, I always said to my mom that if ever I choose a boy, I don't want him to be fair. And I just didn't like fair boys. That's just something about them irritated me. So, so that seemed quite nice and I liked him and the way he talked and the way he was and it seemed that he knew that he wanted his life to go and he was very adventurous type and I thought yeah this would be like good thing for me like you know I didn't want to be stuck in a rut like many of my aunties and my cousins were in Leicester if you know what I mean um so yeah then when we came back we were engaged and I thought because I saw Pinky Auntie and how modern they were and how Pinky Auntie was with her Mapuji I thought, yeah, this this could be good. So yeah, went along with it. Mm. <laughs> so the marriage is pretty much fixed at this point. I mean, this is going to seem very strange. It's strange now for my generation. It's going to seem yeah. even stranger for the next generation and the generations to come that this is the way in which kind of the entire mm. dynasty was shaped. Um, mm -hmm. What was it? What was it actually like, like the meeting itself? Like what, what kind of conversation would people be having? What are the questions? Is it an interview, an interrogate? Like what is going on? Like, oh, so, you know, what do you like doing? How many brothers and sisters do you have? Do you have any hobbies? What subject did you like at school? What do you want to end up doing with your life? Would you be happy to live with my mom and dad? That was one of the things that that asked me. Um, uh, I've got this many brothers and sisters, and like, they're married to this, that, the other. And then with that, it was like, oh, I'm in the YLA, we organize this, like this treasure hunt, and we have this, you know, this musical evenings, and this, that, the other. And so after I got engaged, he invited me to a few. So I would travel up from the, from Peterborough on a train to London. And uh, my mum and dad were okay with that, but I saw my aunts in the group didn't, like the fact that I used to see dad in his house before I was married. 
but that bar was very strict. Obviously, I had the box room, and that was in his room, and it wasn't none of this nonsense going on. But yeah, we used to see each other and go out and have fun. And I remember the very first time he invited me to London, and we went to Leicester Square, and there was that Mecca dancing hall there. First time I'd been inside this this huge disco place, and Dad held my hand, and I was shaking like a leaf. I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> it was just like surreal because he was he was the first 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 man I'd I'd kind of got to know first and the last. So I was never see with with Dad it was different because he was introduced to a quite a few seen quite a few girls by then. Did you know that he was twenty six? He told me later. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it was like the first and the last done. Done. No, nobody. Mm. So yeah. So we moved really to marriage, <coughs> and sort of you know eff- effectively officially becoming a Hindutja. Oh. What was it like oh. kind of joining the family, thinking about you know what the family was, and obviously who Dad was within the within yeah. the family. How did you feel sort of joining? Um, very comfortable actually, because my and Bapuji were really nice, especially Bapuji, he couldn't do enough. He was very welcoming, dikri dikri, you know, like, he didn't treat me any different to he would anybody else. And because I think because of my background, I lived with grandparents, and I lived with my mum doing what she did, I think that helped a lot, because I wanted to be like with them, I wanted to serve them, and I wanted to be a good daughter-in-law. And initially, I remember I used to get up early, put a sari on, come downstairs, like do all the beautiful, beautiful things. And we used to have lots of dinners and I used to be in the kitchen with Ba all the time, doing most of the work and this, that, the other. And, and um, so he, ba, I think it was expected from Ba's end as well. And I think I kind of accepted it that that's my role. When Ba Puji was 70, we were here, Ikuma was young. Um, then they said that, oh, Ba and Bapuji are going to live by themselves in Briarwood again, because, and then me and dad decided, no, they can't, because Bapuji is 70, let them come and live with us. So we said they can come and live with us. So they came. We didn't have enough space, that's why we had the extension done. But in the meantime, they were in your room, you and Kuma were in our room, and Neha was in the box room. So that's how it all came about, and they spent 15 years with us. Amazing. How do you think about that time together and focusing, I guess, on your role as a daughter-in-law? We'll get to parenthood um, in a minute, but how how do you reflect on those kind of 15 years together? Well, I'll tell you, when I um, on time, when I look back, I think uh, some injustice was there in the sense that I didn't get any help in the house when you guys were born, I had to pretty much deal by myself. Because obviously dad had his practice. When Kumar was born, he started his practice. So everything happened at the kind of a wrong timing. <clears throat> and um, so obviously he worked hard. I'm not saying he didn't do enough, but at home I was left by myself. We didn't have two cars or anything. So it was very difficult. If I wanted to go shopping, I had to drop dad off with all three of you in tow, then come back then leave one of you with my mum and then go shopping or leave all, all of you with mom and dad, my mum and dad. By then they moved back here in London. It was very, very tough times. 
And uh, especially after Kumar was born and he wasn't sleeping, I got really ill at one point and really run down. And and then he he was very, how can I put it? He was, he wasn't thriving very and when I, I think because I put him in nursery when he was a year and a half, I always regretted that. And I think he felt it really badly and he, and he wasn't eating well, he wasn't sleeping well. So I had to take him to these Indian doctors. And anyway, he had these various treatments and all that. So I just felt that I wish I'd done things differently. I wish I'd had more time for you guys when, like, when you guys were little. Um, but it was difficult. Uh, I did as much as I could, but it was still tricky. So re- when you realistically, reading, do you think you could have done anything that differently? I don't think so. Probably not. Probably not. Interesting. No. Uh, how, do you, how do you... Because I wasn't earning anything, so that was the only breadwinner. So he had to work hard. And to, you know, to pay the mortgage and the bills and everything else that went along with it, obviously it was tough times. How do you yeah. kind of think about your... How would you describe your kind of parenting style philosophy? Like again, any major influences mm. or any kind of lessons learned along the way? Um, as you know, I love children. So I loved all three of you when you were little. And I, I think I was a good parent. I wish I had more, like I said, I wish I had good, I had more quality time with you guys. But then I think, that I used to take you to classes and I used to muck about with you in the, in, the, in the garden and play with you and wrestle with you and play football with you. And I remember the days when it rained and we used to run around in the garden like mad people. And, and I think on holidays we had fun. And I think even our Spain holidays, we used to always have fun on the beach or in the pool. We'd have these competitions where you'd have to jump on the lilo and do all this. And I'm glad that we had all this fun time together even with our friends' children, like Kevil, Rajiv, you know, we used to go on holidays with them. And, and uh, so I think overall, I think, yeah, good, good parenting, I think. Yeah, happy. I agree. Um, <laughs> so to take a slightly different um, tack, on, and kind of mm. as you think back and just generally of a sort of life, like how would you reflect on kind of things like spirituality and religion so I obviously I know it plays a big role in your life we haven't really spoken about um kind of religion or spirituality like how would you describe that part of your journey well um I was I I believed in God but I wasn't religious or spiritual I would follow all the rituals do all the things um the only thing was in 1992 I went through a phase where I had very bad anxiety attacks and you guys were very young. And I remember in the middle of the night, I, I was petrified because I had this, this sudden sensation come all over me. And I thought, um, like an outer body experience, if you like, like my something, I wasn't within my, and I was like, is this me? Who am I? Is this me? And everything was in the tiz was. And I couldn't, and I woke up, I woke that up and I said, something's happening to me. And I was literally sweating and my palpitations were going 10 to the dozen. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Everything's fine. Just go to sleep, blah, blah, blah. And it, and I woke up and obviously I'd be doing it, but I was like a robot then. I was, I was obviously giving you breakfast, sending you to school, doing whatever I did, 
you're in Broadfield, and I literally used to just walk you down. But then I was like, how do I deal with this? Because I used to think, what's that person thinking of me right now? What are my thoughts? You know, like, it was just so weird. And I just couldn't hack it. And I said, and I, I could always tell Latafai things. I could always talk to her about, we were very close because Omar and Neha were together and she always helped me out and I helped her out. And we were, I was closer to Latafai than anybody else, I think, in that sibling. So I kind of mentioned it to her. And then obviously my mom and dad, and I mentioned it to them. And they said, oh, well, uh, so they took me. And they looked and they said, no, it's just a phase you're going through. Have faith, do this, do this upwas. And I did all of that. I did Santoshimana Sukra, fasting that I wouldn't eat all day. And, and I think that helped. That, the, you know, that, that focus helped. And then I went, and when I talked to Latafai, she referred me to her yoga teacher, Tara Ben Patel. So I had a one-to-one session with her in Hedgeling. And she used to like um, ground me and tell me that my, my solar plexus had moved. That's why I'm having all this uneasiness. Because I used to have this feeling that, you know, like you get this, this fear inside your belly. I used to have that all the time. And she said that was because of my solar plexus had moved. So she showed me these techniques in yoga where I could bring it back into its place and all this. So I tried everything. I even went to my GP and they, they gave me these meditation cassettes. We used to have those little cassettes then. And she said, every day you must sit by yourself in a room and listen to this for 20 minutes and calm yourself. So you should literally lie there in corpse pose and relax, tension, tension and relaxation of every part of your body and do that while listening to that tape. So I did all of that and I came out of it, luckily. But since then, I think it, it made my faith stronger that there's a higher being than me and then I should be like looking into it and finding my true self within that. So it, it's since then that I've become more and I think more and more so now I think I, I want to kind of really get into it and understand and I think it may be a better human being I think a more tolerant human being that's really powerful well I'm curious what what was dad's reaction at this time how was what in in 92 he would he would he would help me in and say that look do whatever it takes for you to get back to Nothing is, nothing is wrong. This is how life is. Like, he, I don't think he really understood, to be fair. But he didn't stop me from taking any route to, to kind of cure myself of it, if you see what I mean. And you guys were very young. And I, and I knew that I had to get better to look after you guys. I couldn't, like... It was a very traumatic time, though. Very few worst months of my life, I think, that, that phase. Mm. Are there any... As you, again, just think about your life or um, any mottos or, or things that you sort of live your life by that you think are really powerful that listeners should be aware of? Um, 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 I think my mom. I think my, I, I constantly think of my mom because what she went through in life from a very young age, what she told me about her childhood was horrendous. And then she got married at the age of 15 and a half, I believe. And my grandma was very strict, although loving, but very, very strict. 
And so she went through a lot of hardships in her life. And then obviously one after the other, five of us were born. And then for her to struggle and then go to India and then go come to U UK and then work in a factory for many years and struggle financially. And, but she never showed it. She was very compassionate in her nature. She had a temper like me, don't get me wrong, but she was very, she, I think what I've learned over the years through her is acceptance. Accept your situation in whatever situation you're in. Accept it and it becomes easier to deal with them. So even when she fell ill at a very young age, she was only 42 and she got arthritis, um, but she never once said why me or any of that. So I think she's been a big influence in my life, if anything. And on a deathbed, I asked her, I said, was there anything that you regret or anything? She said, no. And I think for her to say that after all that, I think it's a big lesson in life. Yeah, it's very powerful. Um, I'm going to switch to ask you some quick fire questions at the end. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'll ask you some questions. What is the rom most romantic thing you've ever done? I've ever done. I think I wrote a lovely letter to your dad when we were engaged, after we were engaged. Do you still have the letter? Yeah. <laughs> I have all his letters and my letters. Did he write letters too? <laughs> yeah, he wrote lovely letters, like songs and... You're my love of my life forever and <laughs> kisses and all this. That's excellent. He's I'll have right to ask him when he has a chance to retaliate. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be thrilled <laughs> by that coming up. Um, what What do you think is the secret to happiness and fulfillment? So you talked about acceptance, but anything else mm. that you would put on the list? Yeah, I think compassion. Compassion. Always put yourself in the other person's shoes and think. Yeah, I think that, yeah. Compassion. Yeah. What would be your advice to your 30-year-old self? Um, I think I did write that down, you know. I did look at it. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, I think be patient. I think I lack patience. I have to admit, hands up. Short-tempered and lack patience. So I think if I could turn the clock back, I think I would learn to be patient more and get less angry, stay calm. Don't sweat the small stuff. Um, yeah, I think that would be the thing if I could tell myself that then. What advice do you have for my generation and the generation coming in the family? I think you are much more grounded than we ever were, I think, because um, I think you, you guys analyze and you, 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 you do things logically. But I would say that don't lose sight of the bigger picture here. You're leading life in very modern times and you get carried away with technology and all this. But take a step back once in a while and think, what's really important to me? You know, what really matters now? And I would say not a big car, not a big house, but just be surrounded by love and compassion and then have 
this this nature around us, you know, that there's so much out there to really appreciate from the littlest rose to the clouds in the sky. And I think people forget to see that sometimes in a rat race, especially at your age. Um, I think, yeah, appreciate the universal abundance around you, I think. Yeah, definitely. Take stock every so often. Great advice. Um, Mum, what's your favourite book? Ooh, favourite book. There's, I think there's a few. Um, I think when I did the um, Gita Jayanti uh, three Christmases ago, Bhagavad Gita Simplified, I loved reading that and it made so much sense. And then Into Thin Air, I loved reading that book about Everest. It was just like really got to me. And the Hanuman book that, that explains the Hanuman Chalisa and how it reflects upon our lives day to day, that's had a big influence on my life. Uh, at the moment, I'm reading a book on Buddhism, on Buddha's life and how he came to be. Uh, I think it's just phenomenal. I think his his thinking and his theory is just beyond. It's the best. That's great. Um, mm. What would you say is your favorite hobby? Or what are some of your favorite Hobbies. hobbies? Oh, gosh. Okay. Like walking, I like trekking. I would. I love going like somewhere in nature. I think, and I like music. I like watching movies, being with friends. Um, yeah, I think been very lucky enough to have all these holidays and travel a lot. So I've seen a lot, and it's been incredible. Incredible. I was going to say there's, there's a few things we haven't spoken about and one is definitely travel and holidays um, mm. what what would be your highlight in terms of your best like holiday experience i mean you and dad have basically seen almost the entire world at, at this point with no exaggeration um i think i love new zealand a lot but i think antarctica would take the cake most oh, phenomenal and surreal what we saw and what we experienced. You looked incredible. Like a, like a, yeah, it was just the best ever. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, um, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh my God, my legacy. Oh God. Uh, oh my goodness. I think I would... I would say that I've been a very fortunate human being to be born in the family that I was born into, to and then to have my family, my married, you know, obviously dad and you guys, and uh, my life that I've led. I think no regrets. Um, yeah, I think a life full of gratitude. I think, yeah, definitely. What was the most valuable lesson that Ban Bapaji taught you? So thinking about the JGF and uh, everything, yeah. what, what do you think um, was the most valuable thing that they taught you? I think with Bapaji, it was compassion and kindness. He was a very kind person. When I first got married and moved here, I didn't have a driving license. And I applied for my driving test. 
And he, he offered, he said, I'll take you for driving lessons every day. You should take me every day. Um, bless him. And he never treated me differently to any of his own kids. And, and I think that was his greatest quality, Bapuji's. There's a lot of kindness and compassion within him. With, from Ba, I learned a lot of things because she was very organized, very sure of herself, and nobody could bully her into doing anything. Um, and I think I admired her for her forward thinking of her time. <coughs> so, yeah, I've learned that from both of them. Yeah. And I think from the Hindu clan, I think they are very, their they bond, they, they, their bond is very strong. And they, and to a point where I think I always thought that her kids were better than anybody else's. But, uh, but I think it's a good thing because they have this very good, steady bond between the siblings and everybody else, which I think keeps the whole family unit together. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot to learn from each one of them. Do you think that's what makes this family special? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because they will never fall out with somebody or lose, you know, their temper on anyone. Within the siblings, I mean, not their spouses, but within the siblings themselves, they have respect for each other. And they, they hold on to that, that bond, what Bai and Bapuji instilled in them. And I think that's carried on, definitely. So, um, again, as part of a kind of quick fire round, I'm going to give you mm -hmm. the names of each of the siblings or each of Bar's children. And I'd like to just describe them in three words. So you have to give me three oh words that describes each one. Okay. Kundan Fei. Kundan patient and slow. You can get, you can use three words, but that's fine. Okay, patient, slow so, and logical. Yeah, logical. Josna Fay. Kind. Kind and compassionate, I think. Yeah. Latafe? Yeah. Latafe is self assured, uh, very, very organized person, and logical, very logical. Practical, Vibafe. practical. Vibafe. Um, strong, strong-willed, um, I think she cared about her outwardly appearance a lot, I think, and nonchalant, I think. Bharat. Bharat, uh, again, very self-assured. Uh, steady and humorous. Dad? Dad, organized. Uh, he's very kind and loving. And fun, last but not least, Bakukaka? Bakukaka is just the best, isn't he? he he's just a fun-loving generous kind human being no fault <laughs> well thanks mum for 
<laughs> being the first guest on the podcast. I'm not... How did I do? <laughs> it may not be the very first episode we release because we may release them in sort of chronological order, but um, thanks for being the first guest. It was amazing. I mean, I obviously, you know, there's so much, again, we didn't talk about like your trips, seeing the world, technology, mm. what happened to that one initial sari that you used to wear to go by every day. Um, mm. But, um, you know, maybe we can do it again next time. And um, as I record other people, I may come back with other questions okay. for you as well. But thanks so much. Yep. I really appreciate oh, thank you, going Nicole. into the history and thank the story. <laughs> thanks. Okay, bye. Bye.